would it surprise you to learn that as a child, I was a pretty strong-willed, stubborn one? No? <laughs> Thanks for the siblings in this room. Um, one particular morning in the Sinfield household, we were getting ready for school, and at that point in my life, a staple breakfast food for me was wheat bix Hands up if you eat wheat bix for breakfast. You good Aussie children. How many do you do? Who does more than five? Brendan, how many do you do? Eight. <sighs> okay. Okay, but one morning, I, for whatever reason, refused to eat my Weet-Bix. And you know, Weet-Bix is kind of okay after a few minutes. It gets that little kind of squishy consistency that you want. But my mum would not let me leave the kitchen until I had finished my Weet-Bix. And I refused. But my mum stuck to her guns, as she did, and she wouldn't let me leave until I finished. So I waited and sat there for over an hour. And I remember by this point, the wheat mix was basically like a puree. It was liquid form. It, and I just kind of end up half swallowing, half throwing up, half eating it all over again. And it was just disgusting, right? My parent, my mum stuck to her word, but I had to eat this disgusting thing in my mouth. And I tell you, to this day, I was so traumatized by that experience that I've not eaten a single wheat mix since. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, in every parent and kid situation, everyone knows that it's not really about whether I eat the Weepix or not. It's about who's in control. It's about who's in charge. Am I going to listen to my mum or am I going to do what I want? And this term in the book of Daniel, we've been looking at who's in charge and who's in control on a much bigger scale. Did Daniel and his friends listen to earthly authorities or to God? Whose voice do they listen to? Who do they bow to? Who will they live for? And tonight we're going to ask similar questions. Who is in charge of your life and who do you worship? Today, and as we just read in our passage, we're going to be talking a lot about kingdoms. And to have a kingdom, you only need two things. It's really simple. You need a king and a dom. The dom part of kingdom comes from the word dominion. It's basically a fancy way of saying that someone's in control or ruling. And so an easier way to think about a kingdom uh, is a king who rules. So in Daniel chapter 7, as we just read, Daniel gets a vision of, from God about a bunch of kingdoms. This vision is actually what's called a prophecy. And that means that God is showing Daniel something in around 600 BC that has partly started happening, but will also open into the future, happen into the future. This prophecy is similar to the one that King Neza had about some different kingdoms we learnt a few weeks ago. Except in this time, instead of a statue that we looked at, Daniel has a vision about four different beasts. And these beasts symbolise different things. If you picked it up in the story, the first beast was a lion with the wings of an eagle. But suddenly the wings are torn off and it stands up and turns into a man. Now you might recognise this as King Neza from a few weeks ago. Do you remember what happened to him? He went from being this great ruler and king to someone running around crazy with animals. That's what the removing of the wings represents, that he was powerful and then not powerful. The second beast was a bear, and it had three ribs in its mouth. And this beast represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And some smart Bible people reckon that these ribs perfectly fit with three big wars that happened in 546, 539, and 525 BC. The third beast was a leopard, but it had four wings like a bird. And this beast we know from the Bible and from history 
is the Greek Empire. And it's said that it had wings because Alexander the Great had super speedy battles around 300 BC. Then after this kingdom was the next kingdom, or the fourth beast. And this was the most terrifying and frightening beast of all. It devoured its victims and trampled everything. And this beast represents the Roman Empire, which ruled around 60 BC, all the way up until Jesus came, and hundreds of years after. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest and vicious empires the world has ever seen. Even non-Christian historians today talk about how strong and how powerful the Roman Empire took over the ancient world. Now, I'm sure you're all sitting there like, hang on, wait a second. Are you telling me that Daniel knew all this would happen before it happened? Yes, that's exactly right. That's what I'm saying. God knows the future and he showed Daniel a glimpse of what it would be like. And the crazy part is all our historical records exactly match what the Bible says would happen. And so our message from the first half of chapter 7 can be summarized like this. It's this king's not in control, this king's not in control, this king's not in control. And then we get to verses 8 and 9. And here, another ruler turns up, except this time it's not symbolized as a beast, but as a horn. Now, there's much debate about who this horn is. We know from the chapter that it's someone who wages war and someone who speaks boastfully about God. But we don't really know who that person is. Some people think it refers to one specific emperor. Some people think it's a future leader called the Antichrist who has a larger political influence, and others see it as anyone who works against Christ. But the important thing to know that this kingdom, although it looks powerful, is also temporary. It's one that will be completely destroyed. So what on earth does that mean for us today? In that chapter, we have an account of events hundreds of years before they happen, which means that what God says will happen, happens. His words are sure and true. So if we have a God who sovereignly rules and controls the world and knows the exact moments and ways in which kingdoms will be defeated and overrun, shouldn't we be able to trust the rest of his word? What other parts of God's word do you find it hard to believe? When God says, do not worry about your life, he means it. When he says nothing can separate us from his love, he means it. When he says that your present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that's coming, he means it. And so now as we go on in verses 9 to 14, Daniel, God gives Daniel a glimpse into the throne room in heaven. And this is an everlasting kingdom, not a temporary one. God is described there as the ancient of days, which means that he existed before time began. Let's read. If you've got a Bible, um, we're in verse 13. In my vision at night and looked, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which means that he existed before time began, and was led into his presence. And so here we have a son of man, which means someone who looks like a human, is in the throne room of God. So this person who looks like a human comes into the throne room of God. And in verse 14 it says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. Who's that person? Yell it out. Three, two, one. Jesus, right? 
Jesus is that human in the throne, one who looks like a human in the throne room of God. And he is here to get a kingdom. He's about to have a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Well, what exactly is a kingdom? We kind of said before that it's someone's rule. It's not a place, but their rule. Firstly, it's Jesus' rule over our hearts as we submit to him and obey him, but it's also his rule over the whole world. Verse 14 says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I want you to imagine for a second a huge medieval castle, one of those giant ones. Um, think, I don't know, medieval, whatever you like. One of those ones, you know, it's got the big moat around it. One of those huge wooden doors that's like two times my height. And imagine soldiers and guards at the top of that castle protecting it with swords and crossbows and archery and arrows. (laughs) Now, I want you to imagine, pick your favorite year eight boy from Restore. There's, there's not too many options. <laughs> Pick your favorite year eight boy and imagine that this year eight boy decides that he's going to conquer this castle. But he's going to conquer it on his own, as any year eight boy wants to do. And so he walks up towards this castle. He's confident. He's going to take it. He's walking up and all the soldiers are looking down at him. And he gets to the door and he realizes he only has one weapon. And it's not a very useful weapon. It's a classic year eight boy weapon. It's a Nerf gun, right? So this year eight boy takes this castle. He's got his Nerf guns. He's running up to the door and he's going, but what's that going to do to a giant castle door? Nothing, right? And the guards are at the top. They're just like looking down at him, shaking their heads, being like, do we shoot this kid or what? (laughs) No matter how hard he tries with his Nerf gun, it's going to do nothing. In the same way, friends, Jesus' kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And any attempt from people in this world or earthly kingdoms trying to limit Jesus' rule is like trying to take a castle with a Nerf gun. It's not going to happen. Verses 9 and 10 here say that Jesus' kingdom, there will be millions of people from every nation, every country, worshipping him and obeying him. Revelation says that God will wipe every tear from our eye. Everything will be new, nothing impure, a perfect place under a perfect king, under his perfect rule. That's what his kingdom will be like. Jesus is on the throne, and wherever he is ruling, people enjoy his blessings. Daniel 7.22 says it will be something that we possess. We will enjoy all the good things about God being in charge when no one try to fight him. Now, like, it's really hard for me to explain this to you guys because we don't have kingdoms in the same way today, right? It's just so far from our context. But I want you to try and go with me on this. I want you to try and imagine a new super government, okay? But this government isn't like a normal government. It's made from the most powerful companies and nations in the world. So, I mean, Facebook's on this government. Apple's on this government. Google, Microsoft, uh, whatever I got, Uber, Instagram, Tesla, TikTok, okay. But not only that, you've got all these powerful tech companies, but you've also got the US Army and the Russian nuclear weapons program, okay? That would be a pretty unstoppable government. And more than that, imagine if you lived in this country, you had free access to anything those companies owned. 
I mean, like, you need some food? Uber eats it. Need some tech? Have a MacBook. Want an Xbox? It's yours. Want a Tesla? Have three. So not only do you enjoy the good stuff that this government gives, but you're also protected from one of the most powerful armies and weapons programs in the world. Like, imagine what this company could do, right? With one click of a button, they could shut down Google. I mean, how would I Google all my terrible illnesses that I don't have? How would I share all my Instagram stories and tell people what I've had for breakfast and brunch and that I've been to the beach? This government would be powerful. And friends, the, imagine, the theoretical power that that government could have is nothing compared to Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is so much more powerful, so much greater. His kingdom will be one with perfect joy, perfect blessing, perfect happiness, perfect creation without the suckiness of the world. But what's confusing about Jesus' kingdom is actually when it comes. Because in our chapter today, Jesus' kingdom seems to be something in the future. You know, when Jesus comes back, we go to the new creation. But when Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples that they would see the kingdom of God in their lifetime. But then again, he also taught them to pray, your kingdom come. Did Jesus get his timing wrong? Was he a million years too early or late? Is the kingdom here or is it coming? Well, the Bible actually shows us that it's both. That in some sense, Jesus' kingdom began when he got here. Remember we said that to have a kingdom, you need a king and a dom. So wherever Jesus is, his kingdom is. But the kingdom is also still coming because we all know people in this world who don't submit to him. But one of the cool things is, guys, is that we can have the access, we can have access to some of the blessings of Jesus' kingdom right now. When we become Christians, we are able to experience some of Jesus' blessings. First of all, our salvation, but many other things too. Forgiveness, a new family, his strength in hard times, his hope in difficult ones, and his peace. But friends, there's a problem. Because even though Jesus is the one true king, even though he's sitting on the throne, he is clearly the one in charge reigning over the whole world, we like to have our own way. So often, our behavior and choices show that we don't really want Jesus in charge. We want to be in control. We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but all too often we act like it's a jumping castle that with one solid stab of a kitchen knife, it'll deflate. We act like we are our own kings, like we are the rulers of our lives. And friends, hopefully if you've seen anything throughout the book of Daniel, it's that when people try to be their own kings, their own gods, their own rulers, it never works out for them. Their sin, their pride, their jealousy gets in the way and God humbles them. Those who don't want Jesus in charge of their life don't have to. And in a sense, God ultimately gives them what they want, a life without him. That's just called hell. People don't have to submit to Jesus' authority, but you can't reject the king and expect the kingdom. Friends, the gospel of Jesus says that despite our sin and living as the ruler of our own lives, rejecting him, the king came off his throne to save us. Jesus paid our debt by his blood to bring us back to God. And so the right response to royalty is to bow down in worship. Why do you guys think people kind of curtsy or bow to the queen? Is it because she's good looking? 
or is, you know, she's got a lot of friends. People bow in the presence of royalty. They recognize her authority and power. I don't go around bowing to the person who takes my Macca's order. I don't go around bowing to the, like, Coles checkout chick. People would think I'm crazy, right? But we bow in the presence of rulers. And so that's what we see in tonight's passage. Verse 14 says, All nations and people, peoples of every language worshipped him. And verse 27, His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. To worship means to treat Jesus like he's worth a lot. It means to fall down before God. And that's both an attitude of our hearts and an action. Do you realize why we're called restore here? It's not because we can't spell it, but it means we're called restore because we believe that you can find both rest and awe in God as you're restored to him and by him. Awe and worship are closely connected. Awe is this feeling of wonder and amazement and respect for what God has done. That's what Jesus deserves as our king. It's how we should respond to him, our passage shows us today. But that's not natural for us. We want to be in charge. Like my stubborn fights with my mum over wheat bix, we want to be in control. So will you dare to worship? Will you dare to risk and fall down before Jesus, giving him total control over your life? Would you stand in awe of him? So maybe that means you risk being made fun of by your friends because you really get into the singing and praise worship here. Maybe that means you spend time worshipping Jesus by spending time thinking about him and meditating on his beauty and what he's done. Maybe that means you worship Jesus by giving up that work shift on a Sunday to go to church. Maybe that means you put your homework aside half an hour early to read your Bible. Jesus himself said that finding his kingdom is like someone who finds a hidden treasure in a field. What do they do? They go and sell everything everything they have to buy that field. This means that Jesus' kingdom, his rule which results in your salvation, is worth giving everything up in this life with joy. So will you be so bold as to worship Jesus joyfully with everything that you have? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that we would see your glory that we would see how awesome and incredible your new kingdom is. And we ask that you would work in our hearts, Lord. Show us where we haven't been worshipping you, where we haven't been putting you first or giving you the glory that you deserve, Lord. Please help us to see that, to believe that. Change our hearts so we rest in your presence, so that we see your awe and that we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.